The Fail On Podcast, episode 040. And one thing I would say is like, how can we use the entrepreneurial prowess for what we've been given to deliver on more initiatives like this? Like, I, I know for a fact, some of the guys you and I hang out with, some of the men and women you and I hang out with don't need the money. And, and so like, just by dedicating the time and support and energy to be able to structure and grow something like this with a very like growth oriented private sector mindset, I think that's something that we really need. Cause a lot of the mental health interventions that are going on are very tightly controlled by government agencies or, or nonprofits. And there's only so much capacity, but we got to come up with like really wild private sector ideas right now. And it's not just about, I'll leave this point here, but it's, it's not just about mental illness or not either. Like what I've learned from what's your big lie. Like I was very deliberate without really knowing it, but I was very deliberate in hindsight about using the term big lie because it's more than just anxiety and depression, right? It speaks to what you uncover. Welcome to the Fail On Podcast, where we explore the hardships and obstacles today's industry leaders face on their journey to the top of their fields through careful insight and thoughtful conversation. By embracing failure, we'll show you how to build momentum without being consumed by the result. Now, please welcome your host, Rob Nunnery. Hey there, and welcome to the show that knows publicly sharing your failures is not only the fastest way to learn, but is also the fastest way to grow your business and live a life of absolute freedom in a world that only likes to share successes. We dissect the struggle by talking to honest and real entrepreneurs, not the overnight success stories. And this is simply a platform for their stories. And today's story is of Jordan Axani. Jordan is a globally renowned marketing strategist focused on digital authenticity and well-being. And he was once the focus of one of the most viral human interest stories in the history of the internet. And that's not an exaggeration. So when people say, you broke the internet, he actually almost did. Jordan's now a writer and keynote speaker focused on marketing strategy and personal development. We'll be discussing the challenges Jordan suffered with bullying growing up, which ultimately led to the development of his current work. He shares his crazy story about a difficult breakup and the craziness that ensued, making him one of the internet's hottest things <laughs> at the time. We'll also discuss the darkest times of Jordan's entrepreneurial journey and the steps he has taken to climb back on top. But first, luckily, all I travel with now is a backpack for one reason only. It's clothing from an innovative Toronto apparel company called Unbound Merino. They have clothes made out of merino wool that you can wear for months on end without ever needing to have it washed. True story, I'm in Florida right now, and I don't like doing laundry, and it's tough to do laundry on the road. And I went for a run in the Florida heat, laid the shirt out. Next day, it was brand spanking new. It was fresh. So it's true, it works. So you can travel with less clothes since the clothes clean themselves. But check out the show notes page for an exclusive fail-on discount that you won't be able to get anywhere else. And of course, if you'd like to stay up to date on all the fail-on podcast interviews and key takeaways from each guest, simply go to failon.com and sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page. That's failon.com. So you guys aren't recording any at all, anymore at all? We're going to be. Yeah. It's just been... It's just been tricky. And we're talking about the imposter cast. Yeah, imposter podcast. cast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we... we so a sign, I think, that we, we're doing something good is that we get asked all the time, like, when's the next season? 
when we left off the first season, dun, 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 we had already begun production for season two. And then Megan and I both opened up new businesses at the same time and realized that we didn't know what we were doing in either business. Um, and then, <laughs> hey, from, the and then promptly started to lose more money than we were losing on our podcast. And then, so all, and then we ended up falling in love and, and getting together too. So there was like a lot of things happening. Yeah. It just wasn't a priority, but we want to get back into it this fall. Because you enjoyed it? We or, loved it. Yeah. We loved it. And and it, it was, I felt like it was really cool. Like we were getting into some pretty cool moments, just like you are on your show with like people that normally wouldn't speak up. Mm. And and it it was a good mix of people that I liked. Like we had like, you know, everyone from like rock stars to authors to, um, we had one guy that's a, a staff writer for the New Yorker that's embedded or was embedded at a certain point in time with a local, like a local moolah in Iraq. And he's this guy from the East coast of Canada that can get by speaking Pashto. And he like blends in. He was telling us his imposter stories of feeling like he didn't fit in the middle East. And we're like, Holy crap. That's a little different than my schoolyard <laughs> totally, stories. Totally. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, we're we're we want to work on it. That's the, that's the term. So is like people that feel like they're imposters or what? Yeah. So so the the we we basically ask one question. It's like, what's the moment in your life where you felt like you're most faking it? And 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 it varies from person to person. Like, oftentimes it has a lot to do with the success and ambition. Of, of course, like where you start to see some of that, but your your self worth hasn't really caught up to that, or you think you don't deserve it. But on the flip side, there was a lot of like childhood stories. Like this guy that's here with me in New York, Mark Hennick, that we're going to UPW together. He is, so he has a very very popular TED talk called Why We Choose Suicide. Um, it's been viewed like five million times now. He was at TED Toronto. That's where he got his start. I think it was like 2013. It's just blown up. And now he, has a, he did, just got a book deal with HarperCollins. And he's the strategic director of the Mental Health Association of Canada. Like he's, he's a big guy in the Canadian mental health space. And he told us this story, not of feeling like an imposter when he started to get famous for telling this story from when he was a kid. That was just mind-boggling. And in effect, when he was 15, he tried to jump off a bridge. But at the last second, as he was standing there, a stranger pulled him down. And then he was on the edge for a while. So I guess the first responders were already on scene. And then the first responders were whisked him away. And so he never knew who the guy was that saved his life. And years later, he ended up breaking his silence and going on this search to try to find who it was that saved his life. And lo and behold, this guy had been writing. He didn't know who this kid was either, right? They didn't know each other were. And it turns out they'd been writing each other letters for years, but not knowing where to send them. No way. And then they had this, this like, when they first met, he basically went on a big morning show in Canada and said, hey, I'm looking for this guy. And then, of course, you know, media being media was like, this is gold. Um, so they, they actually filmed when they met because uh, he ended up, this guy ended up reaching out and being like, oh, I was that guy. So he just has an amazing story, but he didn't talk about any of that. And, and he was actually talking about what it was to live with mental illness and become a father because he had just become a father just before we recorded that. And oddly enough, right now, he just had his second kid two weeks ago and he's down here in New York with me, which means his wife is a saint and oh, she is. Yeah. Rebecca's amazing. But, but yeah, like the, the guilt of becoming a father when you're living with mental illness yourself, you're like, I, I hope my, he, there was this incredibly touching moment in here where he's like, I just. I remember when I first saw my son and all I could think to myself was, I hope to God he doesn't turn out like me. But then he tells the story of reconciling that. And it's just, it's really powerful because we don't really hear that side of it. So yeah, that was the kind of stuff we were getting into with the show. I love that question though. Yeah. When, when have you last, or when, when was the moment that you felt like an imposter? Yeah. The most. Yeah. It's, it's because it takes people to super vulnerable places. Totally. Yeah, dude, I'm all about the vulnerable, super direct questions. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it's, it's amazing because everyone has something. It doesn't matter who you are. Imposter syndrome is something that we talk about in a generalized way. You know, like, ooh, I'm at a party and I feel like I don't fit in. But I think if we look beyond that, I think the fact is, like, we don't feel a lot of belonging a lot of the time. We kind of live in this weird bandwidth. I mean, you know, even in the circles that you and I roll around in, I mean, there's times, like, where I can connect super deeply with people and feel really in tune. And there's times where I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? You know, and not because I, it, it, anyone's like sitting around being like, what he's, what is he doing here? It's just like, we start to like measure and compare. And then we think about those moments where we start to fail in business. And, and especially when other people perceive us as having some success or stability and inside we're like, oh no, I'm a train wreck. <laughs> it's a shit show, man. You, you have no idea. Yeah. It's so easy to lie. And I think one of, one of the biggest reasons I've started to gravitate more towards the entrepreneurial circles, especially like this kind is because I find people just being beautifully honest about that. And there's no judgment. Unlike many, many other areas of business and, and totally. friendship and family and relationships generally, there's not a lot of judgment in the entrepreneurial space. I sent Danny Eine. You know, mm -hmm. I have a lot of love for Danny. Yeah. I sent him an email because I was going to join a mastermind of his. I had to send him an email after I'd committed to doing it. Just been like, Danny, I'm really sorry, man. I, I got back from being with you and we had a couple of things come up within the business, some unexpected expenses. I just, I just can't pull it off, man. I'm really sorry. We're just too tight right now. And he responded right away. I was like, dude, I totally get it. And I didn't respond for like two weeks. And I wrote him back because I felt really guilty responding again. And I wrote him back and I was like, I felt really ashamed to write that first email. And I felt even more ashamed that you were so understanding and I didn't know how to respond. And I'm sorry. And he was like, dude, that hesitation, what you just described there is like the story of my life. And that's, that's the kind of stuff I love, right? Are we recording? Oh, yeah, man. Oh, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. No, but I, I am curious about the moment that, like, what was the moment for you? Like The big imposter flip, moment? To flip the question, yeah. yeah. Oh, boy. I mean, I, I, I've had a bunch, man. I mean, so I'll try to be relatively succinct with this, but I mean, like the biggest moment of all. You don't need to be succinct. We got we got all the time in the world. All right, cool. This is gonna be a twelve-hour episode. <laughs> no, I mean, look, my my imposter tendencies started when I was really young. I, I was bullied like crazy as a kid. I, I moved up from a suburb to a small, shitty little town, and I didn't identify with the other kids. I had one friend who was my next door neighbor and still my best friend uh, in the world, Cody May. But outside that, I mean, like no one would hang out with me. No one, everyone just teased me, made fun of me. That got more violent over the years. And then by high school, it was like full out psychological warfare. I, I blocked a lot of those experiences from my mind because they're so painful. There was, there were some really heinous things that went on. And in fact, I, I was actually just speaking with my mom about this a little bit ago. And she reminded me of a couple of things that I full out pushed out of my head. Like I just did not remember and it was horrifying stuff, man. Like kids can be terrible to each other. And and to combine that with, I'm also a Scorpio, which means like I'm really good at being a chameleon. So I, I figured out how to wear a mask to survive by the time I got out of high school. And then I also was always super ambitious, but my ambition came from a place of less like, I want to make tons of money or this or that, or I want to have notoriety. It wasn't anything like that. It was I was just trying to get back at those kids that made my life a hell. What did they do? Oh man. So it, it started with... I mean, it started with a lot of like the stuff that your mom that that you blocked out, but that your mom yeah, kind of brought yeah, back yeah. up to. I the mean, there was like there was like one instance where I mean, there was this is going to sound like 
it's going to sound it's sort of trivial, I suppose, but I remember like I was at like one of the first sleepovers ever in my life. I think I was in like grade three or grade four. And I was, you know, I was trying to make friends with these kids and the parents, I was sort of a new kid at this point. And the parents were trying to be good and, and welcoming, but like these kids just were not having me. And so like in the middle of the night, they like smeared dog shit all over me. Oh, it was like that kind of thing. You brutal. like wake up and then of course they call you like all sorts of crap for like the next year yeah, based yeah. on that. But moreover, I mean, like what it was, I think the most hurtful part wasn't that. It was the fact that like things didn't go away, you know, and like things would get built up. So like any little thing that happened like that, which is like in itself a small isolated incident, it would then build and all of a sudden there would be this bigger narrative beyond just the kids that were there. And I would just be known as like shitty Jay, right? Craphead Jay. And, and then when that started to get violent, when there started to be pushing when I remember one of, the, one, of the, one of the most horrifying moments that I do remember, and my mom did remind me of this, is at one point in time, I think it was when Nash skateboards were all the, all the rage. You remember that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, those were the good days. <laughs> so uh, we would all bring our Nash skateboards to school, and I could actually skate not bad, which was kind of cool. Looking back, <laughs> I could probably skate better as like a grade six that I could now. And I remember I, we were like, I just got off the school bus, and I just like got into my, my skateboard. And was like skating around the schoolyard, which was for some reason allowed at that point in time. Um, yeah, that's, that's I, I don't think a school policy hadn't really caught yeah. up with that yet. <laughs> and my best friend uh, was encouraged. Cody was encouraged by the group of kids that were always giving me a hard time to come up and like push the skateboard out from under me. And like I felt like fat in my face, and everyone was like pointing and laughing. And that was like Cody and I have talked about that moment a number of times, but that was really painful because he was sort of like the last person that had my back. And then just to be like the laughing stock. So you guys were best friends at that time. And yeah. In yeah. School. Yeah. And I felt like it was like a lot of feelings of like, it, I guess it, it felt like the sense of betrayal, but on the flip side, I also understood and I empathized because he was I, being pressured and yeah, he was being yeah. pressured just like I had been. So I yeah. didn't hold it against him, but it was just really painful to like, know that no matter what, no matter what happens, like, your like the baseline the the foundation of your existence when you're at that age which is your friends right can be just sort of swept out and taken advantage of and turn on you and so for a long time i mean as this went on and, and like things got like nasty like i mean there would be like there'd be fights and uh all sorts of all sorts of shit i mean i remember in high school i'd be petrified to go back to my locker because there would always be something new scratched in it, like bag loser go home and now and again i would do weird things and end up in the media do like a weird food drive not weird food drive but like do bizarre tactics to raise a lot of food during a food drive or like i at the end of high school my ultimate retribution i thought was i was going to ride my i did ride my bike across canada in 60 days i was like one of the youngest people to do that and we raised like 350 grand for charity i missed my prom and everything and when it was announced in the last couple months of grade 12 there was all these media articles coming out and I would come back to my locker and someone would have like taped it up, like has like a nice gesture. But then over top of that, someone would like scratch on like a big marker, like I hate you die. And that was like, that was my experience from like grade three to grade 12. And during that, I just tried to like, I mean, it, it really got to me psychologically. And I, I'm, I've just started to really understand that more. And uh, since I've been around 25, 26, I really started to understand that a lot. How's it affected you? Like as you went like started going into your like adult life like yeah. your 20s your it meant that i hated myself right i had no sense of self-worth which is i think one of the saddest things that we can rob each other of i mean dude like it was it meant a bunch of things it meant that because i was brought up in an environment among those people 
where I felt like that every day, where I was taught to hate myself, it meant that in my adult life, in my early adult life, like people were disposable because I didn't trust them. I, I realized a couple of years ago that I've had huge trust issues with men over the years because of my childhood trauma uh, and teenage trauma. And the other part of it is because I didn't feel any self-worth or self-love and I, I, nothing was ever enough. So even when I had a good relationship, even when I was, even when I had uh, like done something positive for another person, like it was never enough. And it, it meant that I was never present. It meant that I was always stressed out, always like just, I was always a jerk. So I, I turned into a monster, man. I was like your typical bro in a suit, downtown Toronto. I was working originally in management consulting and then I went to real estate development and I was a killer. I was a sales killer. I could close anyone. And it's because I'd been a chameleon because I figured out from a very young age how to get things done and how to navigate in a world where people are going to out to hurt you, right? That's the world I knew. Uh, but I was a bear. And it, the other side of it too, just going back to the childhood piece for a sec is like, the other factor was in a small town, I mean, I couldn't go anywhere else. There was no escapism, right? Like you're, you're there. And when we moved up there, it was because my family, we almost lost everything at a very young age. And so there was only one high school. My, both my parents had to work or my mom was at home trying to do the best she could to raise us. And she, I mean, my parents are amazing. I have so much love for them, but we were already hurting financially. I never wanted to bring that stress home either. So fast forward to like my early twenties after grad school and stuff, like I was ready to explode, man. I just had so much, so much crap beneath the surface. And I, I mean, it was all just like a tornado. And I didn't know at the time, I mean, I'd reached out for mental health support a number of times and I never really found anyone I clicked with. I was told by a couple different doctors that this is just part of growing up as a guy and I should deal with it. I didn't know that ADHD, which extrapolates a lot of that pain too. And then, um, I don't know if you know this story about me, but I don't think we've, I don't think we've ever talked about it, but the ultimate like breaking point was when I was two and a half years ago, I just got dumped by this amazing woman. We had dated for three years and she's, she's still like, I think so highly of her. And, but just before we split up, I had purchased this around the world trip for the two of us. And did she know or is it a surprise? She had an idea. I kind of asked for her blessing cause it was like pretty big. It was like six weeks kind of thing. Yeah, but, and it was, I mean, we traveled a lot together because I was, you know, I was like, I I was such a dick at home that I thought I could make up for being a terrible partner by buying great experiences. And I thought maybe when we went away or when we did go, I mean, we did a bunch of stuff like we did, you know, we did like New Year's in Honduras one year, like on a diving trip. And like, I always figured that when we were away, maybe I could be me. Maybe I could be the man that she yeah. saw in me. How are you a dick like in the day to day? Oh, I was just doing. Was it just like I was self negligent? I, would, I wouldn't stop. Well, I wasn't. I wasn't like a. I wasn't like a violent, emotionally <laughs> abusive jerk or anything like that. I was just like I was always glued to my phone. I was always trying to do a deal. People were disposable. You know, wealth and power came first, and I wouldn't. And anything else was just like a preposterous thing. Time with family? Why? Time one on one time with Liz? Why? Not making and, me money, right? Well, yeah, and not 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 helping me find that worth. Yeah. This is how messed up I was. Sure. And like, what what killed me later on was I knew that Liz saw that potential in me. Like, she saw the kid in me that was hurting. And I remember so many times, like we, once we were in um, Lisbon, we were gone for like a week and a half already. Um, we just come up from like the coast. It was a good trip, and like I was on the corner. We just gone to Lisbon. I was on the corner responding to a work email. And like I had even gone for a week and a half. I had an auto responder on. She looked at me and she's like, "What are you doing?" I was like, I just got to do it. Blah, blah, blah. I just got to head down. She's like, stop. And she like grabbing me by the shoulder. She's like, I need you to be here with me right now, right here. We're here together. 
Whatever's going on doesn't matter. You've been gone for a while already. It'll be fine. And even if you do have to deal with something, do it later. And we're like on this amazing like corner, like right downtown Lisbon, right? And I kept looking at my phone, right? I, I kept working because that's what I had to do. That was, well, that was how I had to uh, show worth. So fast forward, I bought this crazy trip for us a, a little while later. And things weren't okay in our relationship at that point. Ever since we got back from that Portugal trip, I mean, it was pretty clear that I was hurting a lot and suppressing a lot. And then when we split up, it was just heartbreaking, man. It was like the one person in my life that probably ever loved me for me other than my immediate family and saw that, uh, she left me because she was sick of it. So I did what you do in every rom-com, which is drink a lot of beer, eat ice cream, and watch Netflix for like two months. That was like my life. Man. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember like I would... I would try to like figure out what to do with this ticket and this, this plane ticket and the whole thing was paid for. And it just drove me nuts. Cause like it, it, there was no point you couldn't cancel it. Cause it would, there was like three different airlines, yada, yada, yada. I couldn't change the name on it. I, so I was just going to let it go to waste. And it was like 70 something days after, after the breakup. Cause I was counting. Um, and uh, I hadn't really done anything with friends, but a friend of mine convinced me to go out for her birthday with a group of us, good group of us. And uh, we were at this restaurant in Toronto and someone asked innocently, so what are you doing with that ticket in Liz's name, man? I mean, are you still going to go on that trip or what? Well, I was like, nah, I think I'm going to burn it. Whatever. I just gotta, I'm going to change the itinerary and just go myself. And then we still don't know who said this to this day. <laughs> someone said, uh, well, why don't you give it to someone with the same name? And I'm like, like what? Like give a plane ticket to someone with the same name as my ex-girlfriend? That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> and we just broke it in laughter. We're like, how would you do that? Like, what are you going to do? Like, oh, seriously, what are you going to do? Like, message people on LinkedIn with the same name? LinkedIn request? They put a little message in it? Oh, hi there. Good to help you notice you have the same name as my ex-girlfriend. Would you like to go on this round-the-world trip with me? <laughs> um, or, like, like message people on LinkedIn like, or on, on Facebook? Or, like, like I, I mean, if Kuzmich was here right now, we could probably do a killer ad strategy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. But it was like, we, anyway, we just laughed. And, and we, we went out for a couple of drinks after, went home, didn't think about it. Next day, I was catching up on some work. It was, like, a Sunday. I was at my office alone. And I had this, like, what, you know, like those fuck-it moments in life. I I have no idea what came over me, but I had this fuck it moment where I was just like, it was like 4 p.m. in the afternoon. I was sitting at the office. I was miserable. I hated myself. I was alone. She wasn't coming back. Like, it was just like all this stuff just started coming up. And I just opened up my laptop, and for some reason, I went to Reddit. I didn't even have a Reddit account, but I went to Reddit, and I wrote this very stupid post that just said, hey, is your name Elizabeth Gallagher? Are you Canadian? And do you want a free trip around the world? And then it went on. The post was just like, you know, here's the deal. My, my girlfriend and I are no longer available. This is not a romantic thing. Here's the itinerary. Ideally, you know, if you're going to do, if you're interested, if you actually have the name, if you want to come on this crazy journey, awesome. Just pay it forward in a cool way to someone else one day. That's all I ask. And I posted it and read it. It immediately got taken down because I put it in the wrong section. I put it in the travel <laughs> section. <laughs> and I didn't know the Reddit rules, right? Yeah, yeah. So I put it in the travel section. Like, hey, this is a travel thing. And the moderator messages me being like, no, this isn't of international travel significance, which in hindsight <laughs> is hilarious. Um, <laughs> and he's like, you should put it in the Canadian section. And I almost didn't. I was like, no, this is like stupid. But I, I did. And I, I hit submit on it. I was my laptop, went home. I passed out pretty early because I had an early meeting. And just sort of forgot about it. I shared it on my Facebook wall just before I went to bed, though, uh, to the Reddit link. And I said, like, after months of thinking, this is the best idea I could come up with. You know, that was a terrible idea. And, uh, and then I actually said the words. I have a screenshot of this, and I show it to kids sometimes when I'm talking about 
what not to do on the internet. Um, <laughs> I, I, I actually use the language, don't fail me now, internet. So to, to, in effect, I woke up the next morning. It was like oh, like six or something. And, it, it, you know, it's looking at my phone, scanning my news feed, like we all do. You know, it's a great way to start your morning <laughs> feeling like shit about your life. Um, just scanning in bed. And I noticed like at the top, it's not like, you know, like it, we always have like one, two, three, four, five, six notifications. And you're like eight, a seven is like a really good day. And like maybe one or two messages. And you're like, oh, someone loves me. There was like 350 something. No way. And I was like, oh, what is this? And I didn't really put two and two together. Like I wasn't, I wasn't like wasted or anything the day before. I mean, I remember making the post. I was like, 350. I was like, well, I wonder what's going on. Maybe, what, did, what did I do? Maybe there was something big in the news. So I, I click on it. And sure enough, people are sharing this fucking post like crazy, like outside my network. And like people are commenting, tagging me. I'm like, oh, shit. And I'm like, no. And like, this is like, I'm still in bed at this point. So I'm like, I'm laying down being like, <laughs> fuck, no, 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 no. And, and like, this can't. And, and then I'm like, no, it's just probably a Facebook thing. It'll be passed. And then I look at my email. And the first email I see is from an editor at BuzzFeed. And then one from CNN. And then one from a friend of mine, Advice, who was like, dude, it's on the front page of Reddit. I didn't know what that meant at the time. Like, hold on, this is going to get crazy. And I called my dad, freaking out. I'm like, dad, 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 remember that plane ticket I had in Liz's name? And he's like, uh, yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah. So I put it on the internet to try to give it away. He's like, why would you do that? <laughs> like, I don't know. It seemed like a good idea. He's like, and I was like, it's going, I think it's going to go viral. I'm like, freaking out. Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, dude, stop. No one cares about your stupid plane ticket. This will pass in like an hour. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. And so I, I ignore all the emails. I ignore all the Facebook stuff. I go to this meeting. I had to do this. I was doing a real estate, working on a real estate development project in Toronto for the Pan Am Athletes um, Village, which was a super cool project. And we had to go and do this presentation to some investors or something. I went into the presentation and I was like, totally forgot about this whole thing. Like I was in my zone, you know, I was feeling good. I rocked the presentation. I walk out and the guy at the front desk looks at me and he's like, oh, you're the trip around the world guy. Really? And I was like, fuck like is <laughs> it's it, getting real yeah. well yeah when it that was like the first touch point like when yeah. it was like it transcended from this weird digital thing to like someone i never met before Recognize being like you. you're yeah. the trip around the world guy and all of a sudden having this label like this was like literally 15 16 hours after i posted this That's thing crazy. maybe 18 hours and anyways long story short the, the story ended up blowing like it, it got massive like in the first week it got 1.2 billion media impressions like we turned down going on kimmel and ellen to give you a sense of how big it was mm. We didn't need it. And I was like, what is this for? What were we doing? All of a sudden, uh, I was getting hounded by Hollywood producers. Every studio you can imagine was bidding for the rights, including like the guy that does like the Fast and the Furious movies. Like it was nuts. I found myself in LA a couple days later. I signed my life rights away to William Morris Endeavor. Learned never do that. They're a bunch <laughs> of dicks. And I mean, it just got crazy. And, and all the while, as all this is going on, it's building and building and building. My ex, Liz, is humiliated. Oh, yeah. Beyond belief. Right, like, and I can tell, like, the jovial, like, oh, it was really crazy. I was in LA. Sorry, the real, I was, I was dying inside, and I felt so much guilt, and I was trying to walk this weird moral line of like embracing opportunity, but also like not hurting the person I love the most, and it was an impossible line, and she was hurt so much. You gotta understand, like, she could not go to work. Her friends and family were humiliated for her. Like, I mean. I, I couldn't get her on the phone. I was trying to have my parents and my brother reach out to her to see if she was okay. And of course, like her identity, her photo wasn't online just yet. 
and I tried really hard to keep her out of it, but her name was out there. And I mean, there's, there, as I learned, there's a lot of Elizabeth Gallagher's in the world, but there were still only so many in Toronto. So people found out who she was and started trolling and all that shit. And then a photo got published of us from a wedding or, or earlier that year in the Daily Mail in the UK. And that was a big turning point because all of a sudden her identity was out there. And this is not what she signed up for. Like, I didn't clear this with her. I didn't do anything. I sent her a text the day that I posted it, just being like, hey, just so you know, I'm going to try to like, give this ticket to someone. I don't know. Like, just I, I just wanted you to know. You could never have known it would have gone crazy no, like this. Oh, of course not, right? And and I, I, I know that now, but I got to tell you, man, like, humiliating someone you love on a, on a global level just hurts so much. And she's such a lovely, gracious person. And I know how much it was hurting her. I know. And we actually ended up speaking a couple weeks later. I was in LA, of course. There's a TV show already in production. <laughs> a couple weeks later in LA, and I, I just, I could hear it in her voice, like it had aged her so much already. She was so tired, and it just, it broke my heart and it broke her. And after that, we didn't speak for a year. And when I finally saw her a year later, it was after I had had a falling apart, which I'll tell you about in a second. And it was the day after I spoke at TEDx Toronto, and she reached out. It turns out she watched the live stream. Like how sweet is that? Like. She watched the live stream and then the next day we got together to talk and just like looking, it, it was the first time that we were face to face and it was like seven hours of her telling her side of the story and me telling mine and like it, it, a certain heartbreaking things happened just to drive this point home a little bit more. Like, so she never spoke out to the media despite constant request until Inside Edition in the US made her a deal to fly her down to where we are right now, Manhattan. The studio is actually very close to here. And um, they made her a deal that if she came on the show for a special inside scoop that they would promote her business. She's an entrepreneur. She makes raw vegan dessert cakes that are totally beautiful. So she has like great exposure. Uh, I don't know. I've said no to all this stuff, but like they were willing to like rent out a commercial kitchen and like film her doing her thing. And they were willing to settle on questions. And she reached out to me. She texted me the last number she had for me because I went through a bunch of numbers during that. And it was a dead number, but she sent me a text asking for help, asking if whoever was helping me with PR, because I needed PR help. I had no idea how to navigate that world. Um, if they'd be willing to give her some pointers. I never got that message, but she thought I was ignoring her, right? And and that really hurt because what she didn't know is actually in my contract with Sunshine Sachs, which is one of the top PR firms here in New York, they would represent her if she ever needed representation. That was, But she didn't know that. I kept that from her. And on the flip side, when she did do Inside Edition, they went way the fuck off script and like made her cry. And like, yeah, they would like totally deviate. They pulled out my, her, their phone at one point and pulled up a photo of me and Quinn, Elizabeth Quinn Gallagher, the girl I travel with, photo of us on Instagram and said, how you made, how does this make you feel? Did you say eight or alive? And she's telling me all this. And they said, when we see each other face to face, I'm just like, oh my God, I wish. Like, it's just that kind of humiliation no one should ever be subjected to. And that's the thing, like, I've, I've, I, look, I mean, this was the moment where, I, I, what happened in that year between us not talking and us seeing each other is, of course, we, I, I ended up giving the ticket away, went on the trip, it was all filmed, it was all bullshit. Everything was happening after that, right? I had more opportunity than I had ever had in my life. But I couldn't reconcile that even that wasn't enough to make me feel okay and make me feel worth. I hated myself more than ever before. I convinced myself that I would that I was a monster at that point because I would hurt someone I loved so much just to try to feel some self-worth. Like what kind of monster does that? 
in such a big dramatic way too. And I milked that thing. I'm not ashamed. Sure. For a while, it felt good. Yeah. It felt great for a while. It was the first person, the first time in my life it felt like a somebody until I realized that was all bullshit. It was 15 minutes, man. 15 minutes doesn't make anything good. <laughs> but not only that, it gave me a, a peek at how, like, it, it helped me put all the pieces together in a way that I finally understood that I still hadn't forgiven the childhood version of myself that got beat up every day. And when I started to look at that and I couldn't forgive myself over this, I just went in this downward spiral. It got dark. Like, I mean, I know of all people, I can be real with you. It got really extraordinarily dark. Like, to give you a sense, I mean, like, everything started to fall apart. We had built a charity. There was a TV show. There was a movie a bunch of other things that was all built around the same time as the story was huge. And then the charity started to struggle because it turns out running a charity is like really hard, but we wanted, I wanted to create this like philanthropic travel movement. I thought it was going to be really cool. Like, like reconnecting families that had been divided by conflict and like, like helping vets out with, with getting the travel that they need for different treatments. I mean, like we had different verticals of this charity called a ticket forward challenge was, is no one wanted to donate because it's the travel is still deemed a luxury. And so we, we, failed hard. We got 700 million media impressions on the launch of the charity. We launched it on Good Morning America, where he's like $9,000. Just like not enough, man. And so it all fell apart. It was all unraveling. And so was I. And one of my last ditch moves was, <laughs> this is so stupid to say aloud now, knowing what I know now, but trying to raise venture capital <laughs> to start up a for-profit side of the charity. Well, I was already hurting so much. And we ended up raising a bit of money and getting into one of the top 10 tech accelerators in the U.S., uh, to create a travel app that could then be used to as a like one of the funding mechanisms for the charity and hopefully throwing off other money and yada yada yada. Guess what happens? We moved to the Midwest. This was originally a TechStars accelerator. I was a first-time CEO. I was deeply hurting and wounded at the time. I I brought in a friend of mine who helped me build the charity, Andrew. We found a CTO, this guy Sebastian from Montreal, French Canadian. I'm Sebastien. <laughs> I like to code. He's a really good developer. Um, but the three of us just had like a, uh, like a hell of a time getting along as a founding team. So we blew apart like two months into the accelerator. We were the first company to go okay. tits up, right? <laughs> okay. So then, so then you're the failure in this accelerator. Yeah. And I'm just like, can I like nothing work out? I hate myself. I'm miserable. Like I, the charity failed. I had more traction and opportunity than anything in my life and nothing's working. And by the way, I want to kill myself. All I could see was the shame and the trauma and the pain that I'd caused Liz. My buddy Mark, who's down here in New York, in his super famous TED Talk, Why We Choose Suicide, he talks a lot about how your field of vision uh, when you're in that state of mind is so fixated. It's tunnel vision on the pain, right? And that's all I could see and feel. And so like, after the founding team blew apart, I was left at the end of this accelerator. I was the only person from my company, quote unquote, left. We had a couple grand in the bank from the thing of uh investment and like i was just like i i was like nothing's gonna work i'm a failure this wasn't even enough to do this wasn't enough for me to see me after all of this like what length do i have to go to to try to feel like a someone or something or feel okay about myself because nothing was enough i mean i figured if i could if i wasn't the protagonist in the world's most viral human interest story as it's called now um it's uh, it wouldn't be enough. I mean, that story got five and a half billion media impressions over six months. You'd never told me that story. Oh, really? Personally, but, I don't. I, I don't. I don't really lead with it ever. But <laughs> no, but I know the story. 
Oh. That's how crazy it is. Oh, yeah, like you saw it? Yeah. Oh. Like, oh. I didn't know it was you. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Which yeah, is yeah. the crazy part. Yeah. So, I mean, what's, I'm really sensitive around sharing it. I share it when I work with kids because it's really important that they hear that story from the side of digital validation. The entrepreneurial sector side, I don't really... I don't really share it much, but dude, if I'm being really honest, I mean like my weird experience as a kid of being bullied and feeling so much pain, it made me like a master manipulator of large scale, large audiences. Like it, this viral thing was the biggest thing I've ever done. But when I like look back and put together the pieces, like almost every year of my life, there was like another hit of some kind, like influencing a large audience for some specific goal or action. Even when we launched the charity, we were, even though we only raised $9,000, we recruited 8,500 volunteers in 24 hours pretty good that's pretty crazy that's, yeah. that, that puts a telethon to shame man <laughs> yeah, like, we, we killed it but not only that doesn't make a charity operate but yeah man i mean it was it was really messy and weird and it got so dark and so to, to take it from where it went from there just in the darkest moment effectively i was fortunate enough to be connected with a, a guy that took a liking to me a mentor through the program when things are at their darkest, I, I had this weird night one night where he gave me a call just to check in and i he just heard something in my voice that freaked him out he really took me under his wing and he made me realize in the subsequent weeks, like he would fly into where we were and hang out and get to the bottom of this. And I felt more safe with him than I did with anything, anyone of in my life previously, I think because he was new to me and he just led in this beautiful way of building this trusting relationship with me. And uh, it made me realize that I wasn't alone because he had actually experienced something different events, but similar uh, human experiences at a younger age. And, and I kind of started to realize like that, that, and you know, people always look at those moments and they're going to change my life. It didn't change my life. It didn't save my life. But what it did was made me realize that maybe I wasn't as much of a, a waste because maybe if there was one other person that got, maybe there's two, maybe there's three. And then I just gradually started to like, like you are with all this, like start to speak out a little bit more incrementally about some of the things, some of the pain, some of the feeling. And I was constantly reminded that a lot of the narrative I developed in my mind and a lot of the things that were holding me back, a lot of the things that were hurting me, a lot of the self-sabotaging behaviors I had, um, have not had, that they're shared by other people. And that was enough to start to see the other side. There were some terrible moments in there, dude. Like that company ended up, out of those conversations, interestingly, and out of, the, out of that time, I ended up pivoting our start a travel startup. And we pivoted towards an anonymous peer support app that we were going to license out as a SaaS product to different like colleges, like hospitals and stuff so that um, patients or students could connect anonymously in, in a peer support environment. So we actually went to San Francisco and we worked with a guy named Tom Chi who developed, he was the head of the Google Glass team to figure out how we could create a really innovative digital way for people to feel safe and basically undo all the damage that Yik Yak did to anonymous messaging. Sure. We figured out a really cool product and we started to raise some more money on it. It turned out I was so blinded by trying to make something work that we ended up taking money. The lead in our round uh, turned out to be stealing money from other people, other people that were um, involved or aware or mildly involved in our business. He basically said there was a side fund and, and he was putting together money around. This is going to be like what the terms were, blah, blah, blah. We knew nothing of it. Wow. We had to charge him criminally. Mm. When you're an early stage startup and you have to, charge your lead investor with criminal charges sayonara baby <laughs> you are damaged goods man yeah and then the shame of from the startup world i mean i've just started to speak out about that but some of those guys in that startup community i have no problem saying this on the record were dicks to us beyond belief 
because they picked their winning horse. The invest, like the investors, the, the the people within the the startup community in the city we were in. Yeah, I mean, look, I get it. Early stage companies are about picking your winners and then cutting your losses. I get it. I understand the math of it. But I felt so alienated and ashamed and alone for what had happened. And I took responsibility. It was my bad. I, I had blinders on. There was a great line. So when I was really down and out after the breakup and watching Netflix, I watched a lot of BoJack Horseman. That show? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And a friend of mine reminded me of a line in BoJack Horseman, which is actually a very insightful show if you watch, in the right, if you watch it closely enough, which is if all you see is red flags and you must be wearing rose-colored glasses. And that was me. I mean, I just wa- I wanted to believe that this was going to work. I didn't want the shame of a failing company, a failing startup after everything else. And so we ended up uh, having to fold the company. I, uh, and by that point, I did a new business partner. There was a little team. I had to let everyone go, paid the last round of what I could to give them some severance or something on credit card, max myself out. Dude, I mean, and it was like, again, I was like, oh, I thought it was just like it's starting to channel all this and like figure this out. And now, boom, damn near bankruptcy. That's how it goes. That right? was last year? That was uh, last spring, yeah. A long way since. So where are you at now? Oh, man. Like what, um, so from that moment, yeah. what was kind of the... Because that, that must have been the failed charity, the failed startup. Oh, yeah. Everything just like, failed. At that point, I was just like, okay, anything tied to this stupid viral story is dead to me. Like, it, I'm cutting my losses. I'm getting out. The funny thing was, though, dude, is like I still had like TV producers and like book agents and stuff were still like hitting me up like crazy at that point. So it was like funny because it was like, well, maybe there's like another side to this thing that I can figure out. And then I was just like, no, it's over. I'm done. Like, I can't do this to myself again. If I mean, what was I afraid of? Lost momentum? There was no momentum. I mean, there's just a lot of failed experiences. Like, I'd failed more in that year. I mean, I've been trying to build businesses since I was like three. Uh, my first business was a real joke. But since I was like a little toddler, I've been trying to build businesses. And I got to tell you, I learned more in that year from failing in basically every way possible and with like multiple ventures at the same time than I had ever before. So it was just important just to like be like, nope, I'm done. One of the amazing saving graces, I don't know if I give her enough credit for this, so I might as well publicly on this podcast. My my now partner, Megan, was a huge part of of my recovery. And I remember she was one of the first people I told after what happened with when we figured out who our lead was really like and what he was doing. And she was there to help me remind that I needed to trust myself and trust that if I believed that the best decision was to step away from all this, that that was what I needed to do. And I needed to believe in that. Probably a tough time to believe in yourself too. I oh my that. God. The most impossible time to believe in myself. And that's the thing, right? Like Meg's a therapist. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a great, sure. great therapist. <laughs> great great advice. I'll just come down to the real world. <laughs> but no, I mean like, but she showed up and she showed me the way. And we actually started working on imposter cast around them, which was very therapeutic because during this whole thing, I mean, I felt like a total imposter. I mean, on the world stage. But besides that, it started to allow me to like re- put all these pieces together again from my childhood and random experiences and so that was part of my reorientation. But the funny thing was this. So about a month later, I got a call from the RCMP, Candace FBI, through like one of my speaking agents at the time. They were looking to put together a youth program that would get kids to open up in a really cool way. And they didn't really know what that meant, though. But they just knew the same old kind of preventionist, like, hey, don't, do, don't drink and don't do drugs. Stuff wasn't working. And I got on the phone with them and they're like, yeah, like, I don't know, you you seem to have this weird knack for like having things take off, dude. And like, 
do you want to like come up with something crazy? And I was like, no, I've retired. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) That life's behind me. That life's behind me. My my life of blowing things up on the internet is done. No, but I ended up pitching this crazy idea back to them, which did seem like a crazy idea at the time for this thing called what's your big lie. And the idea was, is as I learned from that experience, I've been living a big lie since I was a kid for, you know, 20 years. I believed I was okay because I I rationalized that I was okay because I had to when really I deeply hated myself. And I said, look, what if we use a little bit of the tech we had developed for my failed startup and you had like this anonymous mobile platform where students could share the things that are actually going on while we're in a big auditorium together and project them anonymously and not record any identifiers at all. Like no, no device ID, no phone number, no whatever, just like free for all. And this was like pitch i think for grade seven and eight and nine so like yeah pretty young kids right and they loved it and like i was like fuck i have no idea how this is gonna work i was like who am i to work with kids first of all All right but then it blew up and the first session i will never forget it was one of the most special days of my life i mean just asking these kids about the lie that they've been living what's your big lie guys what's the thing that you know is not true that people know you by what's actually going on underneath that. And because I was in like a fuck it point of life still where I was, I, I mean, my, I, I mean, I'm still in recovery mode and I will be for a long time, probably the rest of my life in different ways. I think we're all, anyone that's dealt with mental illness, yeah. I mean, it's a lifelong thing. Right. And uh, I was in a very fuck it place even still. So I was just asking all these crazy questions to kids. And of course, like every principal and guidance counselor ever that I've encountered is like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, stop. stop that. Do you know what you're doing? I'm like, look, man, they're responding. They're, they're talking about this anyway. But it just, dude, it got to a point where like all of a sudden, like within seconds, the first time I ever did this was out in British Columbia. I did six events in three days with the RCMP. And like within seconds, like kids were texting in like, you know, my mom does blow, blow and hits me. My sister's pregnant. She doesn't know where to go. I tried to kill myself yesterday and I couldn't. Yeah. Grade sevens. Like the 500 grade sevens in a room from like 10 or 11 different schools. And then um, these sessions were long initially, like this, these six events, they were like 90 minutes, which is long for a keynote. I don't want to listen to anyone talk for 90 minutes, let alone myself. <laughs> and ironically, I'm going to see Tony Robbins for like 14 hours later today. But, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but, that, but that, that aside, at the end, I had some time and I sort of looked at the audience and everyone was feeling it a lot. I mean, like you could hear a pin drop in this room. And I was like, hey, does anyone want to come forward and share the lie they've been living with us? I could feel, again, all the principals in the back of the room being like, no, everybody said, you stupid idiot, <laughs> what are you doing? And lo and behold, after a couple of seconds of no hands going up, this incredibly brave girl comes up and she just drops this bomb and like, I have the audio recorded and I listen to it now and again of a reminder of why this project's become so important to me. But she, she just grabbed the mic and she looked scared as shit, but she just went for it. And she told the story of when she was very young, she was made to sexually assault two of her friends by an older guy trusted family friend and uh, she never spoke out about it until recently and then she tried to tell her family and they said no 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 you're a liar that you would never do that and then she tried to tell her friends and they started ridiculing her and she decided uh, not too long before that moment that she was going to kill herself and she realized that if she killed herself um, no one would be there to take care of her parents and even though they ridiculed her and they didn't believe her she was worried that they would head on out of earth as well they would kill themselves too if she did and then like the audio is astounding and it gets to this point where she she lets out this gasp at the end of it and you know at this point i mean her and i are standing at the front and i'm just listening to her just standing there with her just giving space and you just see everyone in the audience like collapsed over when she's done 
we're all silent for a second, and then there's like this thunderous standing ovation for like three minutes. People run up to her, they fucking embrace her. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And then at the end of it, five more kids came up after that. We could have gone on forever, but she she was the leader and she let it. Five more kids came up with like equally devastating things. I mean, like we're in the middle of nowhere, British Columbia, too. Like I want to highlight that, right? Like this is a. And at the end of it, I I run and try to find her. I have a guidance counselor in tow because, like, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> and and she looks at me. I'm like I run up to her and asking her all kinds of questions. Like oh, like what what happened? What happened? What happened? Oh my god! Like how are you feeling? That was so huge. Blah blah. blah. I had total verbal diarrhea. Right. And she looks at me and she's like, "Today was the first time in my life I was validated. Like, what more? What more can you possibly want? What more could I have wanted at that age?" So that experience, what's your big lie started as this crazy keynote concept and the last 12 months in a bit, 14 months, I've done about 150 of those events. Uh, we've done, we've turned into workshops, uh, parent training, teacher training. We do pop-up exhibits. And so to answer your question from like 15 minutes ago, rather <laughs> verbose, where I'm at now is I'm, foc- I'm really focused on building that because it's been enormously therapeutic for me, but it's also helped thousands of people. And I don't say that lightly, and I I don't mean it in a way of like helping them like help them get their lives back on track, but it's helped people realize that they're not alone. I think that's such an incredible thing, and something that is badly needed in all segments of society. And I mean, I've done the talk now for people as young as grade four up to seventy five year olds, and I can assure you the results are consistent. Like we're all there. So I think within that, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to tackle it. One of the first things we did after that is we ended up partnering with Megan. Partners uh, psychotherapy clinic and to get everything properly vetted and and oddly enough, I mean, there's a, there's a really strong case for what we're doing. Like it's it's aggressive and it's bold for sure. It's not for everybody, but it it works. And I mean, I was actually just looking at like the net promoter score from like the last hundred events or something the other day, and it's like crazy high, just because it's so different, right? And I think that's what really that's I mean, look, man, if I had the opportunity to even just witness what was actually going on in the minds of the people around me when I was a kid. Even if I didn't even like participate, if I didn't text anything in, but I was in that room, I think that would have changed a lot of what I thought because I just assumed that because people were nasty to me that I was the problem, that I was the one to blame, that I was the one that was rightfully hated. But that's not the case. So I'm doing way better, man. I mean, it's it's hard. I just like just before we met at Mastermind Talks, I'd just gone off of a seven week speaking tour. Or I was gone for seven full weeks and there's like forty seven events or forty six events or something crazy. And I was just emotionally drained. That was one of the reasons why I was like one of the last men standing at the bar every night. Like I mean, I just it, it, I just yeah. needed to like be out and not in my own head. Because it's this is like I not being a trained psychotherapist or social worker, it's a lot. I mean, just like a couple of days before that, I was doing an event where a kid came up to me afterwards and was clearly distraught about something that had they had raised. And I'm so glad it did because he sat me down and we went, we went for a walk. I knew it was going to be a heavy one. He told me that he was having dreams of bringing a gun to school and killing his, his peers. And he said that there was a gun in the household and he's thought a lot about doing that. And he said he doesn't want to do it, but he's been having dreams of it. And he doesn't feel any guilt in the dreams that he's scared. We ended up, of course, going to the principal's office and then bringing child services. And it turns out there was a lot of trauma and pain at home. He shouldn't have been at home at all. And so there's been those experiences, right? And I'm so grateful that the program has created so many opportunities like that. And yeah, man, I mean, it's it's really challenging, but it's beautiful. So it, for, for, for right now, I mean, it's I'm just grateful 
I'm really, really grateful that in a very bizarre way, this whole viral thing, but really the pain and dirt beyond that has now seemed to serve some kind of purpose. And it's, and all of this too, if I'm being really honest, is therapeutic for me as well. But I'm, I'm, I'm getting more and more careful to make sure that doesn't cloud my agenda about what's best for this program. And one of the best ways I'm doing that now is I'm actually stepping out of it where I have a facilitator model where I'm going to go out and do a couple events, but. So just too draining or. Yeah. Yeah, just do a lot of training because the methodology. No, I'm saying, sorry, sorry. Oh, it's too draining. Too draining on you. It's it's draining on me. Yes, and I I think I think it served its purpose in terms of showing me the value of it. I'm one of those guys. I have a feeling like you're kind of the same way too. Like it's like I'm I'm a really good early stage guy. Like I like to get stuff going and then sort of build the engine. I'm not a good like I would be a terrible Cameron Harold. Oh, same. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah I'd yeah. be the worst Cameron Harold ever. <laughs> like, there, there's, <laughs> I have so much love for the COO types oh, in my in my life. So different, yeah. Yeah, and I'm just I'm just not I'm not that guy. So for the good of the program and for the good of me, I think it's best to uh, bring in other voices. And so what's been amazing and teaming up with Meg's psychotherapy practice. I mean, her staff is amazing, and a lot of them are like prime candidates to go out and deliver it, and they have the psychotherapy training and social work background. But beyond that, too, I mean, it's also really important that we have a diversity of people going in and doing this as well. I spend a lot of time on native reserves in northern Canada, and I really want to incubate a team of local leaders to go within the communities and use this technology and the methodology to be able to uncover some of the pain. Because the suicide rate we're seeing right now is is terrifying. Like, this, that's the thing. Like, I, I haven't encountered a program and I'm not saying this in a way of like to my own honor. I don't mean it that way. This program happened accidentally. I want to really underline that. But I've not encountered a program that is so effective that within an hour, you can go from a cold audience to people sharing their deepest, darkest pain and then coming up with how they can connect with other people who are experiencing the same thing. So that's the whole bolt on, right? So like, it's like, hey, everyone that's having suicide thoughts, all right, come over here. All right. <laughs> right. We don't do it like that openly, but we have, we have ways to weave sure. that in. And the, there's a whole curriculum designed and... That needs to grow, man. That needs to be out there. Fuck. I was at this school in Utah, this university in Utah, like a month ago. And actually, no, it was like two months ago. But we were like uh, uh, just over two months into their semester at the point that I was there. And it was a school of 20,000 people. And they had four completed suicides. Four for a school of 20,000. Not to mention the dozens of attempts, right? And then I'm like, I, I've stepped foot into some communities, smaller communities, bigger communities, it doesn't matter, where there's like, there's attempts every day, sometimes successful. There is so much pain right now. And one thing, and like, I know, you know, a lot of, a lot of your audience is a lot of our entrepreneurial colleagues and buddies. And one thing I would say is like, how can we use the entrepreneurial prowess for what we've been given to deliver on more initiatives like this? Like I, I know for a fact, some of the guys you and I hang out with, some of the men and women you and I hang out with don't need the money. And, and so like just by dedicating the time and support and energy to be able to structure and grow something like this with a very like growth oriented private sector mindset, I think that is something that we really need. Cause a lot of the mental health interventions that are going on are very tightly controlled by government Regulated, agencies yeah. or, or nonprofits. And there's only so much capacity, but we got to come up with like really wild private sector ideas right now. And it's not just about, I'll leave this point here, but it's, it's not just about mental illness or not either. Like what I've learned from what's your big lie. Like I was very deliberate without really knowing it, but I was very deliberate in hindsight about using the term big lie because it's more than just anxiety and depression, right? It speaks to what you uncover 
in your show. It speaks to imposter syndrome. It speaks to the fact that we live in a world right now where we are made to project so many different versions of ourselves in real time in different platforms and places and times and spaces. And like, that's exhausting, man. It's mostly a facade too, right? Yeah, it's of like, course. Yeah. So, I don't know. Join me and my brothers and sisters. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to do with it, man. But I just, I just mean like there's so much brilliance in, in the listeners of this show. And otherwise, I'm like, let's, let's, let's figure this one out and develop something that's sustainable. Yeah. So I guess that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. No, 100%. <laughs> so it sounds like today you're just doing what, you, you, doing what you've built and you're taking yourself out of the equation a little bit. Any idea what the, what the future looks like? Well, I did something really stupid earlier this year, as I normally do. And so that this program ended up growing so quickly that I hired my own booking team and stuff because, I don't know, speaking agencies are kind of a funny thing. And so I bought the speaking, one of the speaking agencies that was representing me. Mm. <laughs> so now I bought the, bought the company. Bought the company, yeah. It was a small company. But yeah, it, and it was funny enough, it, it represented almost exclusively entrepreneurs. Like Mickey and Rada Agrawal, so Thanks, Daybreaker, Matt Brimer from General Assembly, Dan, who was the former CEO of Runa. Yeah, a bunch of wonderful folks, like all great CEOs are tackling social issues. And my buddy Matt started the agency. And it's, it, even though Matt was in Toronto, the agency, because of most of the clients were in New York and LA, were very, very, it's very, very US academic focused. Matt had an opportunity to go work with Steve Nash. And I'm pretty sure when Steve Nash calls, you don't say, <laughs> no, bro, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. I'm yeah. pretty sure you say. Appreciate it. Yeah. I'm pretty sure you say, book me the next ticket to yeah. wherever you need me to be or just send the chopper and I'll be there. <laughs> yeah. So Matt took this other job and he was like, he was a solo wolf running the agency and he was great. But it came up and I, I, was, I was one of the busier people on the roster and I already had my team. And so I looked at it. I talked about it with, with Lexi and a couple of our colleagues and I said, hey, what do you guys think? Can we do this? Can we go from representing one program to like 10? And foolishly, we said yes. But it's been actually an amazing journey because now it's gotten me focused much more in a management capacity and we're really shaking up the agency model. I mean, like I just finished two days with Nick Kuzmich, like focusing on how we can use retargeting pixels to drive more leads <laughs> yeah. rather than doing like the hardcore direct sales. So Disrupt is the agency's name and we've actually cut the roster and we're probably going to continue to sort of focus and refine it. We brought on post-secret Frank Warren earlier this year, which is an amazing coup. Like he's like, he invented the category that what's your big lie does. Right. And now me and Frankie are like texting all day. We're starting to do events together, which is crazy. Cause like, like in university, I idolize this guy. We just got booked for our first joint event. We're doing a week together. <laughs> you can believe it. This is how weird life is. We're doing a week of events together in dun, 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 Nebraska, <laughs> like rural Nebraska. Like, it. It, yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> so we're doing these like full day long community interventions. We start talking about lies and secrets and we pull it together in this beautiful narrative. A lot of communities are politically and racially and economically divided are really into it, which is amazing. So I, I'm also conscious of we're two white guys. So we got to, I mean, we really, <laughs> right. yeah, I, I'm like the most self-deprecating white guy speaker ever. But I, I, anyway, within the agency, we're really big on, we, we want to focus on more of a diverse roster, but of entrepreneurs and people that are doing really amazing social impact work. So building that, and that's allowed us the capacity to think constructively about how to build a facilitator model and have the infrastructure for what's your big lie. So that's been a big part of the focus. The other side too is I've started to work with a lot of entrepreneurs, one-on-one, one-on-many. We're starting to help entrepreneurs and I, I'm using the entrepreneur term widely, but helping leaders in effect start to really read in and understand more of their core story. And you and I have talked a little bit about this before this conversation today, but I mean, I, I get it. Like, it's hard to figure out your message and your angle and 
especially I find once people have seen some success, there's like this natural inclination that's like, okay, I want to, I want to pay it for it. I want to do something great. But then there's a, it's really hard to balance the entrepreneurship version of oneself with the things that we've experienced that are really near and dear to our heart and our story. So I'm helping more people bring that together. And uh, with the help of Danny Eine and, and Nick and a bunch of other guys, I'm launching up a, a program for that uh, in the next couple of months, which I'm really excited for. I never thought I would do that. And I never thought I would have the permission to do that either. And, and maybe I don't, but I, I know from the sessions since MMT of getting to know so many incredible top entrepreneurs and, and speaking with many of them multiple, multiple times that there's something that's, that's missing, I think. And I would like to think that maybe What's Your Big Lie is a really cool framework, even if just conceptually for how we can take something that's seemingly, you know, whatever, you know, talking about our inner pain, using technology, but starting to help people manufacture these programs in a really novel way that builds more platform style programs. Cause I think a huge area of passion, as I already alluded is tackling some of these big hairy issues from with a private sector growth mindset. And I think entrepreneurs are the right people to do it. I just think a lot of entrepreneurs when they get into thought leadership and public speaking, and I think of public speaking just as one area of it, right? It, they, it, we end up spewing a lot of BS, right? I know you talk about this on the show too. A lot of the easy stuff. We start, we talk too much about work. I, I want to hear entrepreneurs talk about big, hairy stuff. I think that's why we love hearing Elon Musk talk about the biggest challenges facing us or guys like Brad Feld coming on talking about mental health or, I mean, the list goes on and on. Like the more, the entrepreneurs that are equally profit driven and social driven. And then on the flip side, I think like uh, the social entrepreneur category is sometimes has been written off too as a bunch of people that'd be better off working in nonprofits, you know? So I'm, I'm trying to find like the moderate kind of like people that can go and crush it, but can crush it on like really awesome things. And that's what I think disrupt is, is poised to help people do and build. Yeah. So that's it. And I mean, dude, I'm, I gotta tell you, like, I know we just talked about a lot stuff but like you and i are sitting in this really cool place <laughs> in new york like on the whatever floor right now i don't want to think about how high we are because it's terrifying 67th yeah. oh god um <laughs> right next to the window and dude we didn't know each other couple, until a couple months ago Life's i mean the, crazy, man. the amount of people that i've met in the last year since i've started to like just be honest about some of the pain and then just like open it up and see where that goes the fact that i was at mmt the fact that I could afford to go to MMT, considering I was in financial ruins a year before, the fact that I've I've been able to like reconcile my love life, and I'm now incredibly in love with Meg, and we're building an awesome thing together. I mean, I'm just I'm just feeling really really grateful, and I'm reminded of um. So Kuzmich, when he was on your show, he was talking about you know sometimes pain isn't meant to be rushed through. I, I think I butchered the quote, yeah. but and I'm starting to look at the last couple of years of being like, right, okay, so it wasn't the one single moment that I was ever going to have in my life, the one single opportunity, that was the fear, yeah. right? And sometimes yeah. as entrepreneurs, we think that it's like totally. moment of traction. This don't want to screw this. Oh my God, yeah. this is it. Uh, there'll never be anything else. And, and I mean, I get why we think like that. We're all highly driven. And the fact that, I don't know, the fact that like on one hand, I was like, I gave up and the fact that I failed so much, but the fact that I was also stubborn enough to just try to like keep being truer and truer and truer to myself. Like I dude, I was like after like the company failed and I did like, I was doing like web design for like $40 an hour to try to like pay down my credit mm. card. I mean, I was just like, like anything, right? Anything yeah. dude. I mean, I thought about driving Uber. I think I applied a couple of times. Actually I did. I didn't get in. <laughs> I mean, I was just trying to do whatever. And, but I was trying to do whatever with the ability of not to like build something else, but just to like buy myself more time to dig into what was actually going on. 
And I'm just so fucking, I just want to help other people do that too, as I continue to do it in my own self. So man, I, I, I you know, not to go all UJ Ramadas on us, but I'm just feeling really, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm just feeling really grateful. Um, and, and, and I just, look, man, I can tell you very honestly, if I didn't have anything more than I do right now, I'd be a very happy man. And I've never been able to say that honestly. Even dishonestly, I probably couldn't have even said that. It's a journey, man. It doesn't stop. Like, are you... Might not be the last failure, right? It, oh it no! Most likely oh. won't be. Oh god, no! But the 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 lows, the lowest to lows, the highest to highs. That was that's what makes it all worth it, right? Well, you know what's amazing about the, like uh, having so many failures. I'm sure you've had moments of this. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. It's like once you have a bunch, you just realize that the worst thing that's going to happen is you'll have another. You know, and it's like this weird thing. I I think it. I think it's another reason why I'm just so drawn to hang out with entrepreneurs as well, too. It's because like. The things that stress most people out don't even... It's not on my radar. <laughs> like, don't, it, it just yeah. doesn't even phase me. Yeah, totally. But then the other things that stress me out, like most people just have their shit together, right? And so it's like, <laughs> right. it's a give and take. But but yeah, I mean, like what's the worst thing that'll happen if this podcast doesn't work out? I gave it a shot and I got to talk to a lot of cool people yeah, like you, right? Exactly. Like, exactly. And you, you invest a couple of grand or whatever. Spent some money. Yeah. And yeah, it, I very well could fail right like in terms of like success versus failure very well could not make me money and it could just not be anything in a year from now and six months from now but like it's you you talked to philip mccurden right briefly we had like a five minute ridiculously intensive thing (laughs) he came up to me and he was like lisa ferguson told me what you do and then he's like (laughs) i i i did that once i was like tell me more. And then we just had this crazy intense exchange yeah. and that was really about all. I, I want to get to know Phil better. Yeah. No, Phil, if you're listening, he's, he's a good <laughs> dude. And he, uh, he even says, cause like I was going from my last business to doing this and I was like, okay, I'm going to do five podcasts a week. I'm going to just go like a million miles per hour. He's yeah. like, he's like, Hmm. Like, what are you running from? Maybe you should. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'm like, oh. of course, uh, of course. Because he's like, he's like, you've had all this busy time with this business, and now you're trying to avoid having empty space because you actually have to deal with your deal with your stuff, right? Yeah. And he's like, you're just trying to fill empty space and rush into this and do five a week and stay super busy and just go, 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 go. And I'm like, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Have you read uh, Driven yet by Randy and Doug? Yeah, so I read it this last week, and Doug actually sent me a message this morning saying, "I just got back from this Zen retreat. Let's talk when let's talk when you're available." Yeah, dude. Because you know some of the writing I was doing on on Facebook, and some of it was pretty intense, and and I was putting myself out there. And he read a lot of it. He's like, "Dude, you were like, you were like <laughs> the poster boy for this book. You have to read it." So I was like, oh, "Yeah, I'm going to." Yeah. And I actually just um maybe like one chapter away from finishing it. Do you identify with it? Is it making sense to you? A hundred percent. And I talked to him last week, actually. And I was like, Oh, like, okay. Like, like you said, like I'm not alone. Right. Because like just a million, a million miles an hour, my brain's going like every single day. And it's like, how do I slow this down? It's like why I got into the writing, which I said, because it like lets me articulate my thoughts on paper and organize them and get it out of my head. And, uh, yeah, the whole, the whole, the whole book's just like looking in a mirror. Yeah, I was like, I was kind of pissed about that part. <laughs> As I was yeah. reading, I was like, oh, come on, stop it. <laughs> stop it. Shame? What? Yeah. Self-sabotage? Huh? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? Me. Yeah, man, I, I've gotten to know um, Doug especially well in the last little bit. We should send him a photo because he texted me this morning too. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's do um, it. But I just, I think their message is poised to help so many people because all of our lives we've been told that we're wrong for how we are. Right. Right. Yep. 
I think that was a lot of guilt that was I was feeling during this too, like early on, and why I beat myself up about so much of how I was driven before the whole viral story as well too, because I didn't understand that that's how I was, and I wasn't. I, I definitely was not taking any steps to manage it well either. So that's all good. So I'm supposed to have an interview at 11. Oh shit! What but time the, is no, it? But this guy showed up at 10. It oh. sounds like. Oh, dude, go. We can just roll right into the next one. <laughs> just, <laughs> just take just the one headset, headset exchange. Yeah, yeah, dude. I'll get. I gotta get over to TR anyway. No, but thanks for uh, thanks for joining, dude. It was awesome, dude. Absolutely, man. Thanks for listening to me yeah, ramble. No, thanks for going deep, man. That's uh, it's it's. I know it's not easy to do, and I appreciate your your honesty, dude. I appreciate you listening. I mean, it, and I gotta tell you this: like, what you're doing is a big service to a lot of people, and I know podcasts can be a grind. But this matters. These conversations matter. All right. So you can find Jordan at Jordan Axani on Twitter. That's at Jordan Axani. And of course, for that spelling, along with all the links and resources Jordan and I discussed, including more information on his business and speaking programs, it can all be found at the page created especially for this episode. That'll be at failon.com slash zero four zero. And next week, we are sitting down with my friend Shanda Sumter. Shanda is a best-selling author, entrepreneur, lifestyle specialist, and the founder of Hardcore Business, a multi-million dollar company. Through her business coaching book and her tailored series of online marketing courses, Shanda presents a step-by-step system to take participants out of the daily grind and into a life they actually love. In this episode, Shanda will be talking about the tactics she uses to overcome a negative mindset and the value of mentorship. She also goes into the most overlooked area that beginners miss when starting a company and her actionable strategy for actually building a business from scratch. Don't miss it. That's coming up next. And if the podcast is providing value to your life or your business, that's amazing. I'd like to send out an offer in appreciation of your support. I'm offering just a free 15-minute business consultation or chat about where you're currently at and where you'd like to go. Please email me at rob at failon.com to get a time on the calendar. And as I continue to build failon with the simple goal of helping you learn from other people's failures, I'd be really grateful for a couple things that are so small but matter so much. Subscribing to the podcast takes a single click and helps the show get found by more people. And when people can find the show, it means it can help more people, which in return means you're helping people by simply subscribing. To subscribe and rate and review the podcast, really easy. Just go to failon.com slash iTunes or failon.com slash Stitcher. That's all for this episode of the Fail On Podcast. For more resources, show notes, and action items to help you find success in your failures, sign up for our mailing list at failon.com. For more actionable inspiration, we'll catch you next time right here on the Fail On Podcast.